and welcome to the third session of our conference. Thank you very much for joining us during the lunchtime slot. Uh, so we've heard this morning about the challenges ahead for the UK at the COP and the importance of engaging the public in decision making. In this ses session, we're going to zoom in on delivery. It's great that so many countries around the world have net zero targets, but we know from experience that targets are much easier set than met and the most difficult areas are to come. So what do governments need to do to get on with actually implementing these huge changes? Uh, what combination of policies, subsidies and regulations are needed to get the private sector, which after all will deliver much of this, to move? What are the big technology choices governments face? What skills are needed and what sort of institutions are needed to support these changes? A very big topic, but I'm joined by a fantastic panel to unpick it. Uh, Michael Liebreich will be familiar to many of you. He brings a wealth of international experience and expertise on clean energy and transportation, technology and climate finance. He founded uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He's a member of numerous uh, advisory bodies, an angel investor uh, and a former member of the Board of Transport for London, as well as an advisor to the Board of Trade. Tim Lord leads the Tony Blair Institute's work on climate change. He's new to Think Tank World, having been recently liberated from a career in the civil service, most recently as director in the business department responsible for the UK's decarbonisation strategy. He's been, he's been making up for lost time and making the rest of us look, look bad by putting out a host of articles and reports, and I encourage you to look at those and follow his work on Twitter. We've built this as an international event, and I'm really delighted that we've got Michelle Colombier joining us. Uh, Michelle's an engineer and economist who's been an advisor to French energy ministers. He's a member of the High Council on Climate, which is the French equivalent of the UK CCC, and he's also held senior roles in the French Energy and Environment Agency. Uh, he co-founded the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations in Paris, where he's now scientific director. And last but, 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 no means by le uh, but by no means least is uh, Rachel Skinner. Rachel's president of the Institution of C Civil Engineers, a chartered engineer. She is the head of UK, uh, UK head of transport at WSP uh, and a commissioner for the Infra Infrastructure Commission for Scotland. Rachel's made net zero a top priority for her term as president of the ICE, which has almost 100,000 members around the world. So she'll, be a, she'll provide some really great insight on how engineering can be applied to net zero. Some quick housekeeping. We are live and of course on the record. Uh, we'd love to hear your questions so please start, start submitting those now using the link at the bottom of your screen and I'll put those to the panel in the second half. We will be tweeting from IFG events. Do join us and use the hashtag IFG net zero. Uh, and again a thank you to all of our sponsors, the Imperial College London Transition to Zero Pollution Initiative, Novo Nordisk, the Association of British Insurers and the Association of for Project Management. Uh, and just before turning to our panel, I'm very pleased that we'll have a, uh, an introduction from one of our sponsors, Sue Kershaw, president of the Association for Project Management. Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for inviting me to this wonderful event today. Um, it looks absolutely fascinating. Um, as president of the Association for Project Management, we're the chartered body for project professionals. It's a real pleasure today to be here and this real focus on net zero, it's long overdue. And I think with COP26, um, we've really got a focus to head for and not very long away. In the project profession, we're all about improving delivery of projects and our response to climate change is a cocktail of challenge in this respect. The original IFG report noted there's a lack of coordinated policies, constant changes of direction, a failure to gain pub public consent for measures, and too little engineering expertise and delivery capability for us to even try to reach this target of net zero. The absence of a comprehensive plan for achieving net zero has deterred private sector finance and it's left people unsure really of how to act. The report went on to call for a clear plan setting out sector by sector how emission reductions will be achieved and when deci decisions will be made where technology is uncertain and that the cabinet office should be made responsible for coordinating the plan and holding departments to account for delivery and that's a real call to arms I, I really respect that. 
Since the report, government has produced a number of policy initiatives, including the PM's 10-point plan and the Energy White Paper. But if the UK is to keep up the momentum and be COP26 ready, it needs to learn the lessons from COVID and Brexit about ensuring it gets delivery right and not just the policy. As the former DCMS Perm Sec, Dame Sue Owen, warned last week in another IFG webinar, the profile of operational delivery experts in the civil service has been raised. Ministers do now realise more and more that an understanding of delivery and baking that in very early in the policy process is really important. You can't come along with a great policy idea and expect it to happen unless you really understand how it's going to be delivered. So I hope that kind of understanding will now continue and that we will bring delivery people in much, much earlier in the formulation of a new policy. I agree wholeheartedly with Dame Sue. What a fantastic statement to hear from an ex-PermSec. There's still time, but not much, to ensure that the focus for net zero planning takes proper recognition of the following. Firstly, comprehensive and continuous stakeholder engagement and public engagement. Secondly, a proper joined up approach across government and with other agents of delivery. Thirdly, ensuring the promised investment in project delivery skills and capacity at the heart of government is, is promoted and sustained. Fourthly, the government needs to embed the latest project management thinking, for example, systems thinking, which we joined up with the IC to develop a paper on and adopts dynamic assurance approach. And what's that? That's assuring you get delivery as you progress, not at the end. And lastly, as the IFG report stated, assess the gaps in delivery capability and consider creating the net zero equivalents of the Olympic Delivery Authority to tackle these infrastructure changes. We can do it. Hopefully this session will draw out these and many, many other issues to highlight that the policy of developing a net zero strategy is matched with a similar commitments and of course a capability to deliver and to deliver it well. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy the rest of the event. Thank you, Sue, for that brilliant introduction. And thank you very much for referencing uh, some of the recommendations in our own report. That's very kind. Michael Liebreich, I'm going to start with you. Um, so, Michael, where do you see the big gaps as we move from targets to delivery? Oh, hi there. Thank you very much for inviting me onto this panel and thanks, Sue, for your introduction there. I'm going to uh, I'm going to use as a jumping off point something you said, which is absolutely critical. It's about system thinking. Um, and, you know, we're, what we've got to do is make decisions, big decisions, but in a world which is uncertain, because whilst there are some technologies that we kind of know work and they provide, whether it's electricity or transport services or whatever, at an affordable point, there's, there's then a sort of second bucket where we think they'll work. We're pretty sure. And then there's a third bucket of things that we really don't know yet how we're going to do. And so what we need is um, is, is to um, be very surgical in how we go about those things. So we need to the, the, the difficult sector, of course, renewable energy is going well, electric vehicles, electric cars going well. But we've got things like heating where it's by no means, you know, I, uh, by no means clear how we get uh, all of that done. We've got industry. We've got aviation. We've got shipping. We've got getting agriculture to net negative emissions because somebody somewhere you know that agriculture is going to have to mop up what the other sectors can't do um in terms of where i i feel we are i mean in a sense you've asked me a difficult question where do i think we're not doing uh the things that we should uh, i'll divide that into a few buckets so first of all there's a few things that we are i put it under um you know we've got to stop doing some stupid stuff we've got some price signals in terms of um, you know, uh, giving aviation a tax-free run uh, whilst we tax uh, low-carbon forms of transportation. We're approving coal mines still, which is, um, uh, you know, which seems absurd given what else we're trying to do in the economy in terms of net zero. Um, so I'd say stop doing the stupid stuff. Then I think um, the next piece is we've got a number of big decisions where we do know um, what we need to do. An example would be heating, right? Heat pumps, we know that we don't know if they'll do 100%, but we know that it will do the bulk of heating has to be done uh, because of the sheer efficiency of heat pumps. You know, if you say let's go for hydrogen, 
hydrogen takes six times the renewable energy generation of a heat pump to heat the same amount of space. But we're not deciding, we're not being decisive uh, and, and going for it. And another, another few areas of big decisions would be, how do we do long distance freight? There are a few candidates, we're just gonna have to decide. Um, R&D for those that we really don't know, so maybe aviation, industrial heat. We need to be pouring money into the R&D because we don't have the answers and we only have 30 years, 29 years, which means that assets built today will potentially be stranded. So we really need to put the money into answering those questions early. Uh, and then a couple of other things I'll just put out there. One is skills. We are still churning people out from our universities who do not have the skills to operate in a net zero world, whether they be engineers, whether they be civil servants, whether they be financiers, or right the way through our trades. Um, architects, probably not used to being called trades, but you know, it's everything from heating engineers, HVAC, all of the things that I, I got a feeling that Rachel will probably talk about uh, as well. Every educational course has to be net zero compatible quickly because otherwise they're churning people out whose careers will be stranded mm. never mind assets these are people right uh, and then i'm obviously going to make a big pitch for trade as being a part of this because it doesn't matter how good we are domestically if we are super on track for net zero but the rest of the world is maybe lagging some cases ahead uh, we're going to have trade frictions and so we need to up our game on trade and how we deal with those or we'll find these kind of political curveballs coming in from the overseas, uh, you know, geopolitics or uh, trade tensions or whatever. So that's my kind of short list of areas or long list of areas that we really need to up our game. Michael, that's brilliant and a really broad picture of, of where some of these gaps are. Tim, how did this look to you from within central government? Did you have feel you had the ability to be surgical in Michael's phrase and sort of looking at some of these problems or not? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Tom, and uh, great to uh, great to be here. Well, well I mean, I, I think there's a very, very long answer to that question after 20 years in government and working on on lots of these things. I think the short answer is that are we surgical enough? Uh, is uh, is not quite yet. But I, I think there's there's probably four things that I'd highlight in terms of you know, my experience in government and what what it means for for delivery on on net zero. I think the first is around priority. So I'm an optimist on net zero. I think the technologies, as, as Michael's elucidated, are kind of there or they're on the way. It's getting cheaper. Uh, the public are increasingly up for it. You know, we've seen the Express and the Sun uh, responding to that uh, this week, um, and uh, and businesses are up for it, and, and investors are starting to to move in this direction. But the fact that you can be optimistic doesn't mean, of course, that it's going to be easy. It's a massive change to our energy systems. We're still essentially a, a fossil fuel-based economy. So how do you get there? The first thing you've got to do is you have to make it absolutely top priority and that means strong central leadership and direction and it means the way you're trading off against other things and this is does involve lots of trade-offs and some of them are pretty difficult um that it's a it's a first order priority and not a second order priority and uh, earlier on we heard we heard the olympics mention and that is a really good example around delivery but one of the key reasons for that is because it was top priority the barriers were swept out of the way to make it happen successfully we need to learn uh, those lessons uh, for net zero as well and I think my experience in government is that that's easy in the abstract, but it's hard in the specifics. So whether you're talking about you know, low carbon buildings versus rates of uh, building of new homes, whether you're talking about your trade strategy, whether you're talking about your planning decisions. And, and Michael mentioned that the Cumbria uh, coal mine is a, is a recent example of it. And that, I think, is where it gets difficult. And the second area is around systems. So Michael mentioned the importance of a, of a systems approach. To date in the UK, certainly my uh, time in government, we've taken more of a sectoral approach. Uh, we've, we've achieved a lot, but actually a lot of that has been delivered by replacing large centralised fossil generation with large centralised renewable generation. And that has absolute value, but the next phase of the transition is not going to look like that. And of course, you have big individual delivery challenges in particular sectors, whether it's 30 million buildings or quadrupling the amount of power you need uh, or uh, the number of electric vehicles we're going to have to deploy. But the real challenge in terms of delivery is doing those things in parallel and doing them in parallel in, in systems which are going to interact with each other in very new and very different ways, which have really important dependencies upon one another. And I think that is a different way of thinking. But it's, it's a difficult way of thinking for any organization. It's a difficult and a different way of thinking uh, for Whitehall um, in particular. Yeah. I think the third element I draw out is about national versus local. So you know, UK government governance is a bit of a mess, uh, if we're honest. It's generally highly centralized. 
where there is devolution, it tends to be quite inconsistent, uh, incomplete and varies uh, quite a lot. And that's reflected in the way we've approached net zero. So we have national targets, we've got an energy system that works in a pretty consistent way. Nationally, we've got some limited devolution in areas like energy efficiency and transport. But the next phase of the transition, and it's not just going to happen in the North Sea with offshore wind farms important as they are, it's going to happen in places, it's going to happen in uh, villages, towns, cities, in regional economies. And I think you're seeing some of the political response to that with cities setting you know, net zero targets and all that kind of thing, but they don't currently have the powers and accountability to do it. And, and certainly from my time in government, I'm, I'm sort of a bit reminded of, the, of the, the Kissinger quote about who do I call when I call when I want to call Europe? You know, who do you call when you want to call the Northwest and talk about net zero? And you currently don't have those structures in place to enable national and local government to build on their on their strengths and their capabilities. I think that is going to be absolutely crucial to the next phase. And again, I think is a, is a different way of thinking for central government. Um, and then the fourth and final point I'd make is about skills and supply chains, because quite often in government you can feel that, you know, you've got a set of levers and if you pull the lever, stuff will happen. So I'll tax it, I'll fund it, I'll ban it. Um, but actually, things don't necessarily happen in that way as quickly uh, as you might like them to. And for the net zero transition, we're going to need whole new infrastructures, whether it's CCS or low carbon hydrogen. Uh, you're going to need huge expansion in other sectors. I completely agree with Michael about heat pumps and in particular over the next 20 years. But we, we've got a target now to get to 600,000 by 2028. I think we're going to need to do more than that, probably. And there isn't a glut of 600,000 heat pumps and installers sat out there waiting to go. So how do you get that supply chain in place? How do you invest in the skills needed, both in government and outside? Because as Michael says, um, uh, otherwise you're going to end up not just with stranded assets, but, but with stranded careers. And you're simply not going to be able to deliver the volume of infrastructure change that you need um, in, uh, in the time available. So those would be my four uh, key reflections and uh, no doubt we'll pick up on, on some of those later. Thank you, Tim, and, and thanks for a really clear explanation of some of those problems, particularly around heat, which I know we'll want to come back to. Michelle, if I can come to you now. Um, so how does that sort of description of the problems from Michael and Tim there compare to the situation that you face in France in terms of delivering emissions reductions? Thanks for inviting me in, in this panel. Um, well, I think I fully agree with what my colleagues have just said. So um, I will try to focus on a couple of points from the French experience. And um, uh, well, as you know, first in France, we have a, a power system that is almost decarbonized for historical reasons, other reasons, not uh, not climate, obviously. And so I think that we've uh, more early faced the difficulty of uh, decarbonization in other sectors like building, uh, like industry, like agriculture and transport. And obviously those systems are more complicated and also more multifunctional than uh, than the energy system per se. So it's it's clear that the, the transition is more complicated. Um, and so from this, I think uh, I would have also a couple of points. The, fir the first one is I agree with the, with the idea of priority, um, but it's something that we've stressed with our first report with the, the, the High Council is that Priority means also that uh, climate policies should be considered in all type of policies. So it's not that you have on the side and even very important a list of climate policies. The problem is that uh, you need to check every act, every government act in other sectors on employment, on finance, on trade, it's been mentioned, etc. against its impact on climate change. And this is, this is really a challenge in terms of, uh, of governance. Um, the second, I think, is that in these sectors I've mentioned, um, decision making is complicated, obviously, because it's about millions of people, uh, because decision making is extremely independent between the individual de decision of people, but also the role of infrastructure, problem of capacity in terms of technical capacity, how to channel finance to all these people who should be taking uh, decisions, etc. Uh, it's also sectors where the uh, where the upstream and downstream consequences impact are very important in terms of jobs, etc. So you have a lot of questions from uh, from different stakeholders. And from this, I think, um, as you know, in France, we've been working for, for years already on plans. And you said, well, the problem is not so much to build plans, but to deliver. Uh, and we have a high gap in delivering also. But I think there are two issues. One is that those plans uh, are completely useless if they do not build a sort of shared vision 
because as Michael said, there, there's a lot of uncertainty. And so we can, as experts, have a clear vision of what's needed and what's not needed and what, but, but this is not a given. It's something that you need to negotiate and discuss with a, a lot of people. And because of these impacts, et cetera, uh, you have a discussion, which means that those long-term strategies and the consequences on the short-term decision of government need to be really, you need to take time to establish this with people. Um, and it will not be a compromise with everybody. It will not be consensual, but it, at a certain moment you need leadership, but you need to build with. I think it's important. And I'd say the last point is the, mo the most complicated thing uh, I would say in, the, in change uh, is not so much to introduce new uh, innovation, technological innovation, social innovation, because, because it's not just about technology, but it's it's about getting rid of the past. And getting rid of the past is the complicated bit of this transition, uh, because obviously everything, institutions, rules, regulations, etc., were built to try to optimize the, the, the past, and getting rig rid of it is a risk, a high risk for a lot of people. And so the role of government is really to transfer the risk from being conservative to being innovative, and that's uh, easy to say, but not really easy to uh, to deliver. So, uh, but I think it's a big challenge. Thank you, Michelle. And Rachel, turning to you. So, you know, Michael, Tim, Michelle, they've, they've mentioned some of these challenges around R&D, the education system, skills, you know, the risk of sort of stranded careers. Um, representing this sort of institution of civil engineers, what, what role do you think engineers can, can play in this? And to what extent do you see that happening around the world? Yeah, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. It's great to join in with this panel today. Um, I guess my start point here is that we've known for some time, although we perhaps haven't fully sort of embraced and recognised quite what it means, we've known that infrastructure is directly accountable for or enables the majority of these carbon emissions, not just in the UK, but all over the world. It's around about 70% of the current total when you consider infrastructure as it's created and as it's used every day, because of course it's, it's all to do with people and what we do and, and how we use those different assets. So it kind of follows in a very logical sequence to me at least that all of us as infrastructure specialists, not just civil engineers, but also beyond that, everybody who's involved in planning and designing and building and maintaining that infrastructure, both at an asset level and a system level, in other words, all these engineers, they're, they're crucial to driving this transition to net zero. So I think I've got three kind of initial thoughts, and I know we're going to get into some of the other areas um, shortly as well, but three initial thoughts in terms of where civil engineers and I guess more generally infrastructure specialists can really help to turn all this policy that we're certainly seeing in the UK now, how we turn it into action. Uh, and the first bit of that is around our changing role, a completely new outlook on what we as professionals do for the world, um, you know, why. The second one is, is new thinking around just ways to work with government to actually bring all this net zero carbon thinking properly to life on the ground. And the third one is really around showcasing best practice, building understanding, filling some of the technical gaps that do still exist that could stifle progress. So if I just say a little bit more around each of those, just to kick us off, and then as I say, I know Tom, you'll bring us back around some of the other ones as well. Um, in terms of the kind of the key or the, the changing role in terms of changing this top level policy setting into action, as civil engineers, we just need to think differently and make sure that we now take full account of the wider impact of what we do. And that's a really easy thing to say. It's actually quite challenging to do in practice. But for decades, we've been very clear about the economic benefits of infrastructure and to some extent the social benefits. You know, we, we know in terms of function, communities all over the world benefit from having better infrastructure, whether it's to do with connectivity or health or employment prospects, education, etc., sanitation, safety, all that, that wonderful list of all the things we want. But what we haven't as an industry or as a set of sectors, from my point of view, seen nearly as clearly is the wider impact of the way we go about creating and using that infrastructure in terms of the form it takes, the materials it uses, the unsustainable behaviours that it enables. So my task, I guess, for, for this year, from my point of view, and, and trying to sort of bring the, the civil engineering community with me as best I possibly can is, is to kind of just change our way of thinking. So it's no longer about sort of forcing all this infrastructure on the world, but actually working with you know, both natural and you know, our own resources and so on to actually make sure that we, we do not have a situation where we continue to cause harm. 
Yeah. And, and certainly the, the carbon and the climate piece of that is absolutely central. And, and it applies right the way from the macro down through to the very, very micro level if we're going to get anywhere near this net zero uh, obligation, which in a UK sense, of course, is, is a legal obligation by, by 2050. So, so we're on a journey, essentially. Um, step one is very much around awareness, acknowledging the issue. I've had a very interesting three months so far in, in my role as ICE president in, 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 I suppose, just helping people to kind of put the pieces in place and, and kind of just have that aha moment where they kind of go, oh, I see, hang on, I, I could really do something about this. I could, in my day job, actually think differently, ask myself different questions. And that awareness thing, I think, is not to be underestimated. I think there is a whole world of people out there still who don't understand the impact they could actually have in a positive sense towards this problem. And of course, the second piece, the second step is about action. It, we, we, I, I guess, to me, 2050 often feels far away still. I, I think we need shorter term, hard targets. We need to think, I mean, for, for infrastructure, essentially, if you wanted to seal it down, we need to halve the carbon impact of infrastructure in the next 10 years. Now that, presents a very different set of challenges to, to asking people to think about something that's got to happen in 30 years time. So it feels there's lots of energy, there's lots of appetite, there's lots of interest in this and I think it's just about catching that and turning it to action that's going to be the key. Um, on, the, on the second point around, around collaboration and, and joining up between policy makers and those able to kind of bring it to life, I think that there's a really interesting way of thinking about just that this has to be a partnership because there is no way that anybody holds all the keys or all the levers to make this actually happen in practice. It, you can have the best policy in the world, but if nobody's able to engage with it at that, you know, on the ground level, we have a problem. And equally, you can have the best technological solutions in the world, but if nobody can connect that through to the sources of funding and, and the relevant policies, it, it, it's, you know, we, we live in this world of disconnects, I guess, at the moment. So it feels to me that if we were clever about this, we, we would join up a lot more closely on this and we would it, it would almost become this kind of symbiotic relationship where there's a kind of a call and response in both directions in terms of saying we've got this can you please set the relevant policy for it but equally right you've set that policy can we just make sure we're clear on exactly where we're actually going with it because I, I mean the nature of net zero is this is this is a collective problem in, in a planetary sense and the only way towards the solution is to add up all the little pieces that people can actually offer. And some of those pieces obviously are far more significant and, and sort of chunky than others. But, and we need the big shifts as well as the small shifts, but we've got to just enable it all through that collaborative approach. Because otherwise, frankly, because nobody holds all the keys, we won't get there unless we've got everybody on board. And the last bit, I guess, just in introductory side of things, just to talk about from my point of view briefly, is this thing around identifying best practice and also filling some of the technical gaps. And I think just to unpack that very briefly, I, I still feel there's a very important point around making sure we're all speaking the same carbon language, the same climate language here. I see all the time, and I think it's very dangerous at the moment, actually, there are lots of people who are making bold statements around, in some cases, actually, how they feel they've already achieved a net zero position. Now, if, if you unpack some of that, often they aren't wrong. It's just the way in which they're viewing net zero and, and the breadth and the, and the sort of the, the reach and the influence that they're choosing to, to either take on board or, or not, more often than not, um, means that actually it's slightly misleading, to say the least. And I think it's dangerous because I think we might be heading towards, uh, in the shorter term, a world where people perceive, oh, well, you know, that wasn't that difficult. I, I've done it. I can now move on to a different problem when actually the, the real scale of change and transformation we need here is, is staggeringly large. And anybody who thinks they're there already, I'm afraid that they, it means they've asked themselves slightly the wrong question, I suspect, because actually there's an awful lot more to, more to go out here. So we need a common language. We need to get far more literate in terms of what we're talking about in carbon. We need to challenge each other a lot more, I think. Um, in terms of best practice, um, one of the things that, that certainly we've been hearing quite a lot is that there are lots of people who are keen to get on board with this. You've got people, whether they're at the entry level across our industries or at far more senior levels, they want to engage, but they don't always know how. They don't know necessarily what good looks like, because this is a, a new set of questions very often that we're asking ourselves in terms of infrastructure across all the different sectors. This is not, you know, the, it's not the way we've been doing things <laughs> for many, many decades. So one of the things from an ICE point of view that we've just launched in the last few weeks is a call for what we're calling carbon champions. 
so where people have actually got real case studies whether or not they're built yet whether or not they you know it's, it's a strategy or whether it's a concept whether it's something that's coming through the design cycle whether it's something that's that's about to be on the ground or even evolving something that's already out there where are the great examples where people are saying i have cut you know however much carbon out of whatever that particular uh, system asset process project initiative might be because i think if we can start to broadcast that a bit more clearly others can then figure out how to get on board in their own way uh, and then and then of course there's a piece around filling the gaps in, in a technical sense because we know at the moment in terms of the measurement of carbon there's a myriad of methods out there we, we haven't got uh, an agreement yet in terms of which codes and standards and you know which sort of regulatory system we want to use in terms of how we measure what good looks like there's there's a wealth of stuff out there but we need to settle on uh, you know the way forward there and progress that really quickly and and as everybody else has already said we need to think about this in the sense of being a whole system in terms of how we actually measure where we're going, how we make sure we're building the right skills, but also just how it actually works out there in the world. Because the acid test here is, are we actually cutting these emissions that we're talking about? Or are we kidding ourselves, frankly, that, that you know, we think we're making more progress than perhaps we really are? So, so I mean, there's, there's all sorts of thoughts in there that I'm sure we can, we can come back to. But it just strikes me that, you know, from an infrastructure space, this is a hugely exciting time. There is massive opportunity out there to really get to grips with doing things differently for all the right reasons in terms of redefining our sort of purpose in the world and so on. And it's going to need all that joining up, joining up in terms of big decisions, but also lots and lots of little actions all over the place to really get there. Thank, Thank you. you, Rachel. That's brilliant and huge amount of detail there and a really interesting perspective from business and just how this how this feels for, for some of the businesses involved. We've got a huge number of questions coming in from the audience, but before we turn to those, I just want to press my panel on one sort of area that's been coming up throughout the day, which is heat. Um, and, you know, it was mentioned, Michael, you mentioned the sort of the need to really get on with installing heat pumps. Tim mentioned the target that the government has, but of course, actually, it's quite difficult to, to sort of find the workforce to implement some of these changes. So, Michael, just to start with you, what do you think is actually the big sort of changes from the government that would convince you that they've got a serious strategy for decarbonising heat. Do we need to see some more institutions to take this outside of Whitehall? Is it a question of funding and supporting poorer households? Where would you place the emphasis there? So, look, I think the first thing we've got to, to get is, is clarity. Uh, I mean, I do this for a living and I can't find the single document that says, right, our housing looks like this. I mean, new housing is easy, right? New, new is easy. That was going to go to a heat pump built in from the start, pushes up the cost a little bit to build, but reduces the running costs. That's trivial. Then you've got retrofit. What I've not seen anywhere is the document that says, this is what our housing looks like. Here's how you segment it. These are the technical solutions that, frankly, we've got enough knowledge. You can actually answer that question. What is the capital cost? What is the running cost? And so on. And it has to be done at a level of detail that is real life. And uh, Rachel, you talked about lots of small decisions. I mean, we, we've we've got. I, I have a, you know, Cambridge University um, engineering degree. First, I've got a prize in thermodynamics. I couldn't install a heat pump. And there's all these people go, oh, well, you can't use a heat pump for this. Well, you can't do that. Well, you have to rip these radiators. And there's all these engineers out there who are actually de designing systems. That, that work and they're not being listened to. We need to get so we need to get that sort of clarity of what we're going to do in what sort of building, make sure it is it, you know that it actually can be delivered by real engineers who know what they're talking about. And then we need to start looking at the financing for that, the policy environment, the financing, because it's basically a massive capital spend for reduced costs, but the payback might be you know 20 years which sounds awful until you realize that a 20 year payback is at 5% after tax, risk-free, guaranteed. And there are people out there that will fund that all day long if the policy environment you know, is appropriate. So I think that would be my plan on heat. Mm. And Tim, can I come over to you on that question? So, I mean, you mentioned this target. You also, we've also discussed the kind of, you know, potential role for delivery bodies here. Um, and, you know, really the fact that this is a, a, a sort of scale of challenge that's not that government's not taken on for a really long time. So would you agree with Michael on, on what needs to happen there? 
I think, broadly speaking, yeah, I would. I mean, heat is hard, right? It's going to be really, really hard to decarbonize 30 million buildings. I think it works out to about 4,000 a day every day until 2050. We ain't doing 4,000 a day, uh, I can promise you. So, yeah, it's a really big challenge. But having said that, it's not impossible. You know, Norway's done this. The Netherlands are starting this transition. Other countries uh, use large amounts of, of electric heating and so on. So, so it can be achieved. I guess my reflections would, would be a couple of things. One is we've got to get on with it. We can't wait for you know technologies that might turn up later and so on. So you've got to get on with it. That means you've got to go on heat, big on heat pumps in, in this decade. Secondly, you've got to be you've got to give the market some certainty. Now you can't necessarily do that today, but pretty soon we need to be clear on kind of what the overall transition looks like and what the end point of that transition looks mm -hmm. like because we need a lot of people to invest right from the big supply chain primes down to you know the, the person who's installing boilers today, but we're going to need them to be installing. Uh, heat pumps or, or dealing with different technologies tomorrow. I think the other really key point that gets lost a bit in this is about consumers and people are going to have to actually want these things. And at the moment, the consumer proposition isn't all that strong. And it, and it seems extraordinary to me. This is this is a you know about maybe 200 billion pounds of investment over the next 30 years. The scale of market opportunity is enormous for whoever can develop a consumer proposition right down to making them look a bit nicer on the side of your house. That people are going to want to access and actually 80 percent of people who have heat pumps i think would recommend them to other people but actually when you engage in the debate it all, it all feels very difficult and i think the government absolutely has a role to play in terms of setting the framework uh, for that investment providing the clarity and, and getting the incentives right to make it happen but actually i think that i think the sector has an enormous role to play and an enormous opportunity uh, to play a role in actually working with the people to whom they currently sell energy um, to, to make this a desirable consumer proposition, because if it isn't a desirable consumer proposition, it will fail, uh, no matter no matter how strong your delivery routes and so on are. No, thank you for that, and that really relates to the points made on our on our earlier panel about just how to make this attractive to consumers and, and the public. I wonder if I could also bring in this question. It's from we don't know who. It's from anonymous, um, but they're asking. Do we know what percentage of new build houses are now regulated by strict environmental guidelines? Tim, I, I th thought you might pick that one up. We've seen the sort of changes flip-flopping with the zero carbon homes policy and, you know, actually quite a lot of houses still being built that aren't quite to standard. I mean, even if new build isn't quite such a big challenge as, uh, as existing stock, what would you say to that question? Um, I, I don't know the precise number. What I do know is, you know, we are still building homes and connecting them to the gas grid. Uh, Building them a zero carbon will probably add three or four thousand pounds to the cost of build, which will probably be absorbed in the land price anyway, and therefore not go through to the consumer. And it's going to cost a lot more than that to do it later. So I think it, it's certainly good that the government have committed to making new homes zero carbon. Personally, I'd like to see that happen a, a bit more quickly uh, than it's currently uh, than it's currently committed to. And certainly, you need to solve that part of the problem if you're going to solve the rest of it. But it is really important to remember, obviously, that probably you know I think eighty percent plus of the, the buildings uh, that we have built now are still going to be here uh, in 2050. So while I, I completely agree that, that getting on with, with new build is absolutely critically important, we can't do that and then do the retrofit piece. We've got to do both of them together. And Rachel, just could I come to you on the on the business perspective on this? So Tim's sort of set out how actually there's this huge wall of, of money coming towards decarbonising housing. Um, but actually the consumer proposition isn't great. We see problems with, if you look at the sort of energy efficiency space, the Green Homes Grant, lack of accredited suppliers there to actually do some of this work. So what's needed from a sort of business perspective to make sure that the, the supply is there as well as the demand? Yeah, it's interesting because I actually found myself asking some very similar questions of people who are trying to put together some guidance in this space not long ago. I'm not quite sure what its status is. I don't think it's, it's quite out yet. But I think everything we're talking about here is absolutely kind of visible. The issues are there. The challenge is that you ask the logical questions, well, well, surely there's a way of structuring this. Surely we must know what the housing stock currently looks like. Surely there must be a way of dealing with this sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, 1970s type construction versus your 1930s type construction versus, you know, we, we know what we've got, don't we? But actually it is horribly complicated because in fact, as it turns out, the cookie cutter solutions don't really exist in a, in a way that they could be rolled out at scale across such a sort of a thinly spread geography, if you see what I mean. So I think, uh, I mean, in terms of the business response, I mean, there certainly are firms out there who are trying to respond to this need. I suspect at the moment they're probably finding it really difficult to do so in practice. I, I should say I have a heat pump. We did a big um, refurbishment project a few years ago now, and so we kind of dived in and everything we've just heard is absolutely 
absolutely true. If it wasn't for the fact that I knew about this stuff, it would have been very difficult to to engage and to actually understand how to sort of get from I have an interest in this to I would actually like to get to a point where the thing is installed and running and in fact heating my home and you know providing with hot water and all the rest of it. So I think I think there's a there's a big communications challenge out there, public facing as well as professional facing. There is of course an enormous jobs opportunity here and we're going to be on the hunt for some of those aren't we as we come out of COVID you would think. So it does feel like now might be quite a good time to put some effort behind this and really start to think about okay so this is a way of creating you know a, a host of locally based roles across the country where we could in fact if we could just get that pace moving as we've just been hearing we really could actually take it places and start to, to eat into the existing stock in a, in a meaningful way mm. uh, quite where you start i mean that that is the challenge isn't it I, I suppose for my money i think you it would be about identifying a segment of the market where there is a more general solution available and just starting to get that rollout running at pace and at scale so that then you can start to build around the edges instead of perhaps trying to tackle everything everywhere and then wondering why it doesn't work Michael, I'll come to you in just a moment, but I just wanted to come to Michelle, who I think wanted to, to offer a reflection on this, this heat question from France. And I wonder, Michelle, if I could just pose a question, which is to what extent does the sort of different way that government is organised in France make this question potentially look a bit different? I know you've got sort of different bodies involved and, and, and the role of local government might look a bit different there. I think we're facing the same issues that, that, that you have mentioned. And um, one of the conclusions of the, the report that we've issued last year on this uh, question is that um, there are two important elements. One, uh, I think Michael mentioned, it's an investment. So it's, a, it's not an issue of spending, it's an issue of capital. And there's a question on how you can, instead of giving subsidies and whatever, how you can channel finance to uh, to the people because the people do not have 20,000 euros or 30,000 euros to in, to invest in uh, refurbishing their houses. So this is a question and this is something that governments can organize obviously, uh, but it's an issue to transform all these specific decisions for all, all, all houses, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, into something that is bankable from the point of view of getting finance from the private sector. So this is one role for governments. And then there's, there's a role of delivery and the role of delivery, uh, I think local governments uh, are extremely important, um, not in doing this, but in organizing this with professionals. Because the question is how you reach to the people with at the same time this financial offer, a technical offer, but also a guarantee that the two will match. And the guarantee that the two will match is the most difficult because in France we are having a lot of support, financial support for instance, but you get financial support for whatever you install. Uh, if it's well installed or not, if it's the right solution or not, etc. You just get a share of the bill, of the, the money spent. And obviously, this is uh, this this opened the way to every kind of good and bad offer, etc. Um, we we do have we do have about two hundred thousand uh, retrofit in France of what we say good quality. We would need a million per year, mm -hmm. and not and not two thousand hundred uh, two hundred thousand. So it's it's a start, but really that those two issues: how to bring finance to the people, and how to bring technical expertise to the people, so they can people and also SMEs, it's the same uh, small businesses, etc. It's the same. It's not their jobs to invest in retrofitting, in retrofitting homes and how you make the proper um, mandatory uh, rules so that if you get money from the states, there's a guarantee that it will be done uh, the right way to some extent for, for the people themselves. So they, can, they will have the savings and for the environment uh, objective. So this is this is where we are now and we're trying obviously to go in this direction. Just one point, you've mentioned electric heating. I mean, we, we, we have an experience in France with electric heating for historical reason. Uh, it's clear that we, uh, two lessons. One is that electric heating goes with heat pumps and energy efficiency, which is important also uh, because there is a social issue and the electricity, ne uh, I mean, it's, it's an expensive, uh, it's an expensive uh, energy type of energy. And second, um, in some areas also, and this is interesting, if you look at Sweden or if you look at the expense of the Netherlands also, and some regions in France, um, district heating is also a good option sometimes. And it's a good option because you can use uh, you can use waste energy from the industry because you can use biomass, you can use ge geothermal energy, etc., etc. So there are 
different type of energy carrier that can be used. Electricity is one major, uh, but it depends where also. And, and, and this, you can integrate this at local level. It's more, much more difficult at national level. So nationally, we can try to bring the, the, the elements, the tools for delivering. Uh, but I think that local governments has an important uh, role in actual delivery of those of those policies. Thanks, Michelle. Michael, I'm going to turn to you now. Some, some really interesting points and responses there on, on the heat question and standards and funding and so on. I'm also going to throw you another question to answer at the same time, um, which is again from an anonymous uh, viewer who asks, uh, many countries, including the UK, are continuing to build new roads. Do we need to stop doing this entirely to deliver net zero? Okay, good. So that, that's a great question about the roads. Um, but let me just on the, I really just wanted to hammer home the point about finance, right? Because it, it's tied to this question of what is the consumer proposition? Right now, these uh, low carbon upgrades are regarded as a cost and a very substantial cost, you know, whether it's 20,000 euros, 15,000 pounds, it's that order of magnitude. And of course, you know, so you, it gets treated as a cost. Meanwhile, those same people are investing in fabulous new kitchens, which they regard as an asset. So flipping a low carbon transformation from a cost to an asset. And I think there is something is partly psychological, but also um, if you can turn low carbon retrofits into a savings product, right, I could invest in a fund that upgrades you know, your home or your SME or your business, but I can't do the same in my own home, mm. right? And then on the social housing front, if you look at what, there's an extraordinary statistic, which is that if you look at all of the kind of social expenditure of governments, about 10% of that goes to, straight to, you can chart it, straight to the utilities, straight to the utilities for inefficient housing. Now, those are hugely financeable flows. And I, I urge, you know, anybody, you know, any, anybody in the audience, think about how to flip that around so that, that those flows of money can be turned into the retrofits. Mm. In terms of the roads, can we build new roads? I would, uh, the first thing I would say is if you say you're not going to build new roads, your political career will be enormously short. Right? So that's one very practical answer is in and you know Michelle your experiences in France with the yellow vest movement you know if you think you can get this done by denying people convenience by denying people lifestyle by denying people the ability to get their kids to school on time then that's a that's a, 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 a absolutely the wrong way to go um what we need to do i think um Clearly, electric vehicles are not perfect, but they're a whole hell of a lot better than the alternatives. There's a huge program of FUD. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember what FUD stands for, but misinformation saying that electric vehicles are worse than diesel. and so on. It's nonsense. They're a lot better. They're not perfect. We do need to get into livable cities, walkable neighborhoods, the 10 minute city low traffic neighborhoods. And this is one where, you know, the government really, you know, Grant Shapps early in the pandemic lent in, he made money available, he said all the right things, even did all the right things. But then I think there's a, there's a, a fairly um, organized or certainly very vocal pushback, which has to be confronted because the silent majority wants to live in a livable environment and they want progress on climate and they want to be able to take their kids to school walking and not in an SUV. And um, it takes a certain amount of political bravery, um, but you, you, know, you can't outright ban roads, but equally we've got to have a long-term vision for how we, re how we reduce demand for vehicular transfer, uh, transportation, but without without banning things, but by making the alternative so darn good and so pleasant that that's what people will choose. And it's decades, decades and decades. You know, Holland, cycling capital, if you look at old pictures of Holland, it looks just like the UK. Mm. Cars everywhere, people dodging in and out of traffic, there was resistance and so on. But now they have, I'm sorry to say it, much nicer cities than a lot of uh, UK cities in terms of livability. Michael, just while we're on transport, I wanted to put another question to you from my colleague Alistair Baldwin, who asks, he says the Transport Planning Society recently said, transport pro said that transport projects which increase carbon emissions must be withdrawn. Uh, do you believe that hard and fast rules like this are needed to achieve net zero? 
Part of the problem is that I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've never yet seen a cost benefit analysis that I agree with. And obviously HS2 is a great example, but you know, I was on the board of transport for London and fundamentally what happens is, I hate to say it, um, that the leading, whether it's the politicians or the cartel of, you know, uh, um, civil servants, the, the TFL, you know, uh, exec, they kind of decide what they want to do and then get the cost benefit analysis or the carbon, whatever that, that fits it. So I'm very, I'm loath to say that, but I, I should probably stop rambling because, you know, if you could do that, if you could be sure that some piece of infrastructure is going to increase carbon emissions, like, for example, a third runway at Heathrow, mm. right? there's just no doubt what that will do. It's not necessary in terms of if you get rid of short haul uh, flights by, by, by using the channel tunnel, which is grossly, grossly underutilized. If you actually had a proper infrastructure plan for the southeast of the, of the UK, which we don't, Right, because the mayor only does London and nobody really does the rest of it. And if we had a proper plan, you don't need that. And so that, you know, that should be withdrawn. Absolutely. Yes. Brilliant. And M M Michelle, I wanted to turn to you on some of these transport questions, because I think you wanted to come in with a with a view from France. Yeah, I, I wanted to come in because uh, Michael mentioned uh, the, the, the Eurojacket crisis, and I think it was very interesting. Um, uh, obviously, it was a very broad movement with different directions and a lot of people. So we cannot just uh, summarize the yellow jacket movement with one point of view. But it's been very interesting that the discussion it has opened in the society and in, including within the yellow jacket movement um, was not in, the, in a position to uh, ecology and climate change and whatever. Um, this was a minority, but most of them, what they, what they said was exactly what Michael said. Um, our problem is that you are trying to impose a tax on us and we do not have the solutions because infrastructure are not there, because electric vehicles are not there, because the way the cities are organized, we are obliged to use a car, etc. So it was very interesting because it was it was somehow a message of hope, even if it was a bit violent, um, in saying we need a different organization of transport and the technologies we have like electric vehicles or whatever, are part of this change. It's not just substitution of the current cars and their role by electric cars. It's how we integrate electrification mm -hmm. within a different vision of city organization, etc. And we had, after this crisis, we had this uh, convention of citizens and there were different proposals from the convention of citizens and some of them have been ruled out already by the government, which is, I mean, uh, I regret it, um, but but there were proposals on this precise aspect. And one of them, if you take the, the issue of uh, neutrality as a whole, uh, one of them obviously is also the issue of the artificialization, artificialization of soils. And so this relates to infrastructure, this relates on how much we can expand cities. And, uh, we need also uh, agriculture and the, the, the net negative uh, balance of agriculture, but we need soil for this. We need biodiversity, and so that there are limits also to uh, artificialization, and we need to we, we need to take this into account in our capacity to expand cities and, and expand um, infrastructure. But as you said, I mean, it's already been ruled out for the time being because it's extremely complicated to implement and to tell local authorities, for instance. Uh, no more artificialization, no more road, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we need we, we need to think of it, and it's a condition for uh, I think the success of electrification, etc. Brilliant, uh, Tim, Michael, and Michelle have taken us into some of these transportation questions. There, um, you know, the UK, the Prime Minister sort of announced this pretty ambitious target in terms of the phase out of uh, internal internal combustion engine cars. You know, we've got that kind of Hard, hard target to aim at. What do you see as the big delivery challenges? Say, I mean, clearly we've got to do a lot in terms of getting the grid out there, making this easy for people in their lives. So I wondered if you could reflect on that a bit. And I also, I'm going to bring in another audience question here, which is, um, we've got a listener who's not convinced by the government's rhetoric on, on sort of jet zero, as it calls it, sort of low carbon aviation. And they're saying there's close to zero chance uh, that that will happen by 2050. Is the government ready to take the tough decisions required to fix problems in aviation? Sure, thanks, uh, thanks, Tom. So I think a couple of things. I mean, the, the, the 2030 target for phasing out new petrol and diesels 
is challenging. I think it, but I think it's absolutely achievable. Look at what that market's done uh, in the last 12 months alone. You are seeing, you know, but we've seen a lot of vertical curves on graphs in the last year or so, most of them very bad news. But, you know, you're seeing a vertical curve on this graph and it's pretty good news. So I think that can happen quite quickly. The key thing for government, I think, is about uh, how do you make sure you've got the infrastructure uh, and the systems in place, but also thinking about two other things. One is the equity impacts of that transition. So, you know, all things being equal, we're going to lose 40 billion quid roughly in, in fuel duty and, and vehicle taxation. And we're going to experience much higher congestion as motoring gets cheaper for people who can afford electric vehicles. And that's not a great outcome. We've got to lean into some of those big uh, policy questions and challenges. The second thing is the kind of livability of neighbourhoods and alternatives to driving are really, really an important part of this. You know, we're still building high carbon housing. We're also still building uh, neighbourhoods and housing developments, which are completely reliant on car ownership and usage. And, and mm -hmm. to Michael's point about the 10 minute neighbourhood and the 10 minute city, um, I think there's a lot of appetite for that. And actually to make the net zero transition attractive to people, to consumers and consumers are voters, uh, you have to make it um, something that, that works for their community and for the way they want to live their lives. And I think simply thinking about the transport um, transition in a sort of plug and play mode, I'm going to get rid of my and diesel, I'm going to get an electric vehicle instead, is, uh, is to miss a big opportunity. Um, on the, the, the jet zero uh, question, um, I, think it's, I think it's a fair challenge. Aviation is an incredibly hard sector to decarbonise, both technologically and in terms of the degree of international cooperation and coordination uh, that's needed there. I think there are real opportunities to, to reduce emissions significantly from aviation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you can do that while still maintaining a pretty high degree of, of global mobility. And you certainly don't want to be, uh, to Michael's point about, politicians having short lives. You certainly don't want to be in the space of telling people they can't go on their on their holidays or travel internationally. And I don't think you need to do that to meet net zero. I mean, it's worth saying that net zero doesn't mean everything gets to zero in 2050. It means that the UK overall gets to net zero by 2050. And there will still be some emissions in some sectors. There'll still probably be the old classic car on the road that's using a vehicle. And there'll be some buildings which are impossible to decarbonise because of their particular circumstances. And you'll still have agriculture and aviation emitting reasonably significant amounts. Mm. So it's really important, therefore, that we get the kind of the offset markets, uh, the carbon capture and, and direct air capture markets right and working, not relying on them too heavily, but recognising that they're a really important part of the picture if we're going to maintain uh, the kinds of things we need to be able to do, like international travel, which are vital for the percent. Thank you, Tim. We're coming towards the end of our time now, but I'm going to come to Rachel because I'm really interested in your views, given your transport expertise on these questions we've been discussing around roads, electric vehicles, aviation. I also wanted to put another question to you, which is something Tim just brought in there and a couple of people have referenced from the audience questions. It's around the role of sort of local government and planning in all of this. How do we sort of design all of these infrastructural changes so that they sort of knit together at the local level? Sure. OK, in about two minutes, no problem. <laughs> Um, no, I think, I mean, first of all, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with an awful lot of what's been said in the last few minutes in terms of that whole sort of transport side of things. Of course, we have to continue as we have been for 20 years to try and nudge people towards, uh, you know, more sustainable ways of moving around and, and the more local neighbourhood ideas and so on. And we've learned a lot this last year, haven't we, about some of that, which has been, I think, really interesting. I do want to say, though, very clearly that certainly from my point of view, achieving a net zero carbon position whether we're working towards it in the interim or whether we're talking about 2050 and having having done it, it does not mean that we cannot build anything. It doesn't mean we can't have things. We The, the function of infrastructure in terms of the benefits that it brings and it, talk about roads in particular and the connectivity benefits. Let's remember it's not just about people moving around. It's about freight. It's about all sorts of things that are related to both business, but also to do with our everyday lifestyles, things that we all want to have available to us and so on. So it is not a simple sort of, you know, go, no go decision in terms of what, where we need to go with that. What we need to think about is if we want the connectivity, how do we do that in a way that no longer causes the same degree of harm? And how do we start to think about putting right, you know, the impact that we're now going to fully assess, right, in terms of the climate and the carbon impact and so on of these various things as we bring them through the design and build process. How do we make sure we do that in a way that is fair and in a way that doesn't cause any further harm? That's 
the that's the key question. It's not about saying, well, you just can't have any more of that, because I think that's that's not a helpful way to think about it. Um, the, the piece around local government and, and planning, I think, actually fits in really neatly there, because and I guess I touched on this right at the beginning, actually, as well. None of this is going to happen unless we recognise the role of place and the role of local delivery on the ground across absolutely everything that we've been talking about today. And, and I think at the moment, often, you know, it's easy perhaps to set the sort of the, the high strategic bar saying we must all do this. The translation of that down to the ground is the absolute key here. If we can find a way you know, and, and to some extent, it's beginning to, to bubble through things like changes to the green book, through things like having a new construction playbook that's now beginning to push some of these things through. That's all good. But how do we engage in a way that's really meaningful and so that we can actually get those hundreds of local authorities, you know, district councils, county councils, combined authorities, all this thing, they've all got to be a part of this same transition. And, they, and we need to have that common way of thinking so that everybody sees the contribution they can make and I think there there is an enormous you know stretch ahead of us a huge opportunity to go at in terms of just rethinking the way that that actually joins together utterly crucial. Thank you Rachel we're going to have to wrap it up there I'm afraid uh, a huge subject and uh, a huge thanks to my my panel for sort of delving into it from a few different angles there we could continue talking about this for many, many hours. Um, thanks to all of you for watching and submitting uh, great questions. Uh, as always, you can you can catch up with this event and all of our events on our website and on the IFG Live podcast channel. Um, the next panel in our conference it, coming up is on how to pay for all of this. So picking up a lot of what we've just been discussing. Um, my colleague Gemma Tetlow will be chairing that and we've got Dieter Helm, Paul Johnson from the IFS and Rain Newton-Smith from the CBI. So that kicks off in 45 minutes. Do join us for that. You've got time for a quick walk in the meantime.